My name is Evan White, and you're listening to the Stories on Stage Davis podcast. With one episode left to go before the end of our all-podcast season, I want to thank all of you who've been listening this far, and to say that we are looking forward to being back at the Pence Gallery in downtown Davis when it becomes safe to do so. In this week's episode, we're welcoming back actor Kelly Ogden, who has read for our series numerous times. She will be reading an excerpt from Jillian in the Borderlands by Beth Alvarado, whose work has appeared in The Sun, The Southern Review, Guernica, Plowshares, and has been nominated for Pushcart Prizes. Three of her essays have been chosen as notable in Best American Essays, too. Stay tuned after the reading to hear Beth Alvarado on the inspiration behind her story. But first, here's Kelly Ogden reading Jillian in the Borderlands. Jillian in the Borderlands by Beth Alvarado When Angie allowed herself to think about her ex-husband at all, she felt that Bobby Guzman had deserted her for no good reason, other than, as he would say, she was pince. Most of the time, she didn't miss him, and she was perfectly capable of taking care of herself, thank you, but deserted in this godforsaken desert, that's how she often felt, marooned among morons. Mac and Wiley were the least of it. The guy on the other side had a mean Doberman, and whenever the dog got out of the yard, everyone would drop what they were doing and scurry into their houses, hiding until the damn dog was recaptured. The guys down the street from the trailer park, why, they did their own paltry versions of home invasions, waving guns around until you handed over 20 bucks or whatever. After a few years of this, no one had much left to steal. An air raid alarm. That's actually what was needed. Some sort of warning. The meth heads are coming. The meth heads are coming. So you could stash your TV or stereo in the closet, hide the family jewels if you had any. Really, they didn't want any trouble. They just wanted enough for the next fix. It was almost like a donation to keep the peace. Who worried about missiles, although they did indeed live in a town ringed by missiles, with neighbors like these? When Angie and Bobby had found the place, it hadn't seemed as if they were surrounded by outlaws. In fact, the neighbors, like Mac and her husband, who trimmed their square green lawns every Saturday morning and washed their old cars till they gleamed, had greeted them, glad that the house, the blight of the block, had been sold. Sure, the house had holes punched in the drywall and black mold in between the tiles of the showers, such was their price range, but it had been neglected by its owners and perhaps trashed by them on their way out. Nothing that soap and water and paint and hard work couldn't fix. Angie had stripped all the bright orange paint off of the cupboards in the kitchen, and Bobby had stained them a warm walnut. They'd ripped up the old carpeting and layers of linoleum, and he'd painted the concrete floors brick red like those in the houses of his youth. They'd replaced the drywall and the tiles in the bathrooms. They'd built an arbor in the backyard and planted grapevines in a vegetable garden beneath it. Angie had made curtains and quilts and towels on the ancient black singer her mother had given her. During all of this, she had been pregnant with Jillian, and she sometimes wondered if it hadn't been the chemicals that made Jilly mute, although the doctors repeatedly told her there was no rhyme or reason. Little did she know that Jillian, 
swimming in the warm amniotic fluid, had known everything she needed to know even then, had foreseen that in five years her father would witness the deaths of his fellow workers, one literally felled by a falling saguaro. They weighed tons, evidently. Another, while trimming a palm tree, foresaw that his friend would climb up the trunk with spikes on his shoes and a belt around his waist, fastening him to the tree, foresaw also that the dead fronds from above would come crashing down, forcing his head forward against his chest until he could no longer breathe, and foresaw, finally, that her father would not be able to get to him. No ladder would be long enough, not the extension ladder from the job, not even the ladder of the first fire truck, which would take a half an hour to arrive. Her father would have to listen to his friend cry that he did not want to die until, in fact, he did die. Her father would then sink into a deep depression, feeling that even nature was becoming malevolent, feeling there was nothing a man could do to keep his family safe. He had, after all, been helpless in the face of death. In response, he would grow his hair out and his beard, and he would begin to partake a little too much of the beer. Of course, none of this happened until Jillian was five. Up until then, the three of them had lived in their little house and cultivated their garden and cooked out on summer evenings, only having to hide from the bullets of their neighbors when they rained down from the heavens on the 4th of July or New Year's Eve. It was only after these deaths he could not prevent that Jillian's father would begin to look like a sad, dark Jesus, that the neighborhood would be taken over by people who were ruled by their baser appetites, that nature would start reasserting itself. Even the vines would begin growing into the house between the windows and the bricks. Even the rain would drip through the roof into pots. Even the waters from the rains would rise and flood in under the door in the winter. Even the winds would uproot the trees in the backyard, the trees knocking over the wall so that the lizards and rabbits and snakes and quail could come into the yard and eat from the garden. Even the weeds would push their way up through the asphalt in the streets and the cracks in the sidewalks. But since Jillian had foreseen all of this from the womb, nothing surprised her. She decided that if there was nothing her father could do, there was nothing she could say. Only her mother could see none of the signs, not of her husband's sadness, nor of the crumbling world around her. She was determined, Angie was. She was determined that, despite all evidence to the contrary, she could make of this the best of all possible worlds. Everything could be made anew and safe for Jillian. All it took was a strong will. Jilly, Jilly Bean, wouldn't you like an itty bit more lunch, sweetie? I made you those frogs on a log you love so much. Jillian turned off the volume on 1,003 Horrible Ways to Die, a show she was never supposed to watch. She hated it when her mother called her Jilly, and she hated it when she talked to her like she was a baby. Mom, I'm not stupid, I'm speechless. That's what she would have said, except for she was speechless. Why was I born now? She intuited to her maker on that fateful day of her birth. 
Why not in the good old days when she could have churned her own butter and milked the cows? Although not in that order. And then gone out into the wilds with her handsome hunk of a husband who looked like Clint Eastwood when he was Rowdy Yates on that old Netflix show, when she could have been abducted by an even handsomer if you went in for the ambiguous ethnic type, which she did since she was one herself. Indian, played by an Italian, a renegade who would ravish her as much as she wanted to be ravished. And then, when her husband rescued her, he wouldn't even care because, hello, she'd been ravished and he would love that little half-breed baby just as much as his own toeheads. Why now? Why in this day and age, she'd wanted to ask, while the mists of heaven were still in her eyes? And so, for an infinitesimal split second... She could see ahead to the next day when, on her way home from school, she would encounter Wiley next door, well-named because he was so wily, as in Wiley E. Coyote, and not a hunk, not by any stretch of the imagination, ethnic or otherwise. She'd seen ahead to the deer's head in the yard. This is why she would stop and look. The deer's head. It was a portent. And she knew she would look into its eyes and see alarm there. And then the deer would say to her so clearly, Do not go into that house, chickadee. Wiley E. is one sick puppy. But at that moment, her split seconds omniscience would end. And like the rest of us, she'd be left in suspense. What did the vision mean? Was it a warning telling her not to go into the house, telling her she could alter her fate, or was it simply a sign that she was fated to go into the house? Curiosity, the deer's head would tell her. Curiosity is what killed the cat. Not one to ignore a talking deer's head, but sure of her own agency, Jillian crept up to the sliding glass door and peered in. There, she saw the child bride zipping around the kitchen, running her hands through the plates and glasses, trying to knock them off the shelves. When the child bride heard Jillian at the window, or perhaps she just sensed Jillian's presence, such are the powers of the dead, she turned and her hair rose away from her head as if a big Costco fan was blowing. And just then, Jillian could see through her and realized that the deer's head had done her a solid. Old Wiley was one sick puppy, but too late, he was standing on the other side of the glass. He slid open the door. Why, hello, sweet thing. Want to come in? Don't eat any of those pills, the dead child bride warned her via some sort of strange telepathy. Or drink anything he gives you. Jillian closed her eyes and remembered all of the episodes she'd seen of 1003 Horrible Ways to Die, in case there were any hints there for her to save herself. But which episode? Death by impalement? A javelin through the eye? Where would she get a javelin? Death by decapitation? Oh, not likely. Death by electrocution, a possibility since every house had electricity. And then she remembered the one where the guy who was out on parole got an apple shoved in his mouth. He was tied up, trussed up like a pig that he'd proven himself to be. Death by dominatrix, she thought it was. 
but she'd closed her eyes so she didn't know exactly how he died, only that it was an excruciating death which seemed, in her opinion, a fitting way for Wiley to die too, being as it was like biblical, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and all that. And then, as if both the deer's head and the dead child bride had seen her thoughts, when she'd opened her eyes, that was indeed the scene in the kitchen. The deer's head had gone inside and was floating up near the ceiling, shooting lasers from its eyes, which somehow pinned Wiley to the wall, and the hands of the dead child bride now moved so rapidly as to only be a blur, and Wiley's open mouth had a waxy tangerine stuffed in it. His eyes were bulging out, and, behold, unbeknownst to anyone, one of his eyes was glass, and it popped out and rolled across the floor to the open door where Jillian was standing. Run, the deer's head said to her. Run, the dead child bride said. Run. Jillian picked up the eye, which was still warm and slightly moist, and ran. The dead child bride had not always been dead. She remembers when she was little how she used to love to sit on the lip of the tub before her bath and tip her head back and feel her hair fall down her naked back. She used to move her head from side to side so she could feel her hair like a waterfall or like a big feather. She moved her head so she could tickle her own back so she could give herself goosebumps. She remembers other intensely pleasurable things. Cherries bursting in her mouth, cold, sweet ice cream, the smell of earth when she made mud pies with her brother, the buzzing bees in the lazy garden, running with her strong, strong legs, riding bikes, riding in the car with the windows down, wind, 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 whipping her long, dark hair all around. And thus it was when she died. A wind came and lifted her, and she could see, as if she were flying over the whole world, all the other dead child brides. Although not all of them were dead, and not all of them were children, and not all of them were brides. A little girl who had been taken through her bedroom window. A woman's head sticking out of the sand, men gathered around her, arms raised, stones in their hands. Women in courtyards, their voices rising in grief. Women in apartment buildings, five locks on every door. Girls in cars, girls in bars, girls in shopping malls, girls in army uniforms. It made her dizzy. And now Jillian... And now, again, Wiley. The dead child bride, her heart is cold. She freezes him. She manifests her face as it is now. A skull, the smooth bones, the eye sockets, one caved in where he hit her. The orbital bone, she says to him, her voice frosty. Can you say that, Wiley? She comes so close to him that he can feel the ice in her voice. He can feel that she is not afraid. And then her hair, her long black hair, which, in death, 
has been growing longer and longer. Her long black hair, strong as silk, it reaches out like tentacles and strangles him. It is that easy. In the Precarious City, in which Jillian travels to the Precarious City and encounters the ghost of her great-grandfather, among others. 1. Angie O'Malley and her daughter Jillian are on a plane, its shadow skimming the clouds below them all the way to San Francisco, a city Angie considers precarious, as in, an earthquake could happen at any moment. She's been worrying for weeks that the big one will hit while she and Jillian are there. The history of San Francisco, at least for her, is bound up with her mother, who grew up across the bay and now lives near Telegraph Hill. San Francisco, where her grandfather had a mistress for 35 years before leaving her grandmother, who was the mother of his nine children. This, according to Angie, is how the leave-taking happened. Her grandmother got a bill from the cleaners for the other woman's drapes, and so, feeling ill, she climbed the long, curving flight of stairs to her bedroom. The house was a Victorian, Angie tells Jillian, just as her grandparents themselves were Victorians of a sort, born in the days of Queen Victoria, formed by those mores, his infidelities, therefore, however sordid and hidden, a fact of life. Still, her grandmother felt disturbed, and this disturbance was wrenching onto the very cells of her brain, and so she lay down on her bed and had a stroke. Her husband found her there and sat by her side all night. He sat there waiting patiently for her to die, calling no one, even though his son, the doctor, lived in a house nearby. When, by morning, his wife had turned blue but was still breathing, he went downstairs, knocked on his oldest daughter's door, and said, Your mother is ill. She needs you. And then, free of the burdens of his life, he disappeared with his mistress into the precarious city forever. Angie has told Jillian about her great-grandfather before, but because Jillian can't talk, Angie has told her lots of things in long, convoluted monologues that Jillian allows to drift through her mind, like clouds streaming across a summer sun, like geese flying south, like dark fish beneath the surface of a pond in winter. Jillian looks out the window of the plane. They are above a layer of clouds, dense as cotton batting. She can't see through them. Is this heaven? Even so, Angie continues, my mother, your grandmother, the youngest of the nine and so, perhaps the most innocent, adored him. Adored him. Even though he left her mother when she was 18. Even though he'd been the kind of college student who found it amusing to use his fountain pen as a dart, which he chucked with surprising accuracy into the scalp of the bald guy who sat in front of him. Even though he'd bragged that the Chinese laundryman always put exactly the right amount of starch in his shirts because he'd threatened to cut off his ponytail, or cue, if he didn't, which meant, Angie explains, depending on whose story you believe, the laundryman would either never get to heaven or could never return to China. 
too. Ha, Jillian thinks, rolling her eyes at her mother. That shows you how much your grandfather knew. Han Chinese men hated to wear cues. They had been forced to shave the front of their heads and braid the remaining hair into a queue in the 1600s by the Manchus in the Qing dynasty. To rebel was a sign of treason, punishable by death, death by beheading. And thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, does anyone know for sure, lost their heads, literally, rather than put their hair in a queue. Blood had run in the rivers, as they say, soaked the thirsty earth. Jillian knows this because in those moments when she was first born, in those few precious moments of omniscience, the universe had downloaded into her brain all sorts of random data. Her hard drive is wired, wired, wired. It's her retrieval system that lacks some precision. For instance, when she thinks Q, she thinks King. And when she thinks King, this catchy little saying starts playing. Keep your hair and lose your head, or keep your head and cut your hair. Which, in a way, makes no sense, she thinks. But then who said oppressors had to make sense, even historically? Of course, if you were Chinese in America and didn't have a Q, you couldn't go home to your family in China. But by 1911 and the Xinhai Revolution, all that had changed. And so she can just imagine the laundryman looking up at her great-grandfather, all six feet four inches of him, and thinking, WTF? Dude, it's the 1920s. Even the emperor has cut his cue. At that moment, her own faulty brain is flooded with images from Bonanza, the little Chinese cook, what was his name? He had a cue and a cleaver. Hop Sing. Oh, how she loves little Joe. The girl is different. Even I can see that. She must be nine or ten, almost as tall as her mother, and yet she sits there looking out the window at the bridge, drawing like a much younger child, while her mother and grandmother drink tea. Lois, her grandmother, my boss, insists on calling me Maria. This has been going on for years. Por qué? Marisol is too hard to remember? The girl's mother smiles at me apologetically when I set the tea before her, but then, just as quickly, she drops her smile and I am left wondering if I am seeing things. These people, a cloud across the sun, that quick they change, as fickle as the weather here in the area of the bay. Later, she, the mother, Angie, she says to me, Where did you learn to make scones like these? I didn't know scones were Mexican. This is a joke? Lois, she talks about her other daughter, the one with the broken heart whose husband absconded with the teenager from his morning math class. She says, and what is the common denominator? She is. She drives them all away. Mom, Angie says, and I know what she is thinking, because I've heard it all. The first one liked to powder his nose, coca. The second one too fond of drink. And this one, the third, according to Lois, not marriage material. Or not the marrying type? How does she say? Angie she motions with her head towards the girl. Why? 
because she thinks her daughter is too young to hear of such things as an uncle who likes girls her age? <laughs> I can tell you this girl knows of such things about men. As all girls do, why pretend otherwise? He's a P-E-D-O-P-H-I-L-E. You can't keep a man with vinegar. Oh, Mom, but why would she want to keep him? I'm just saying, my brother was 17 years younger than his wife, who happened also to have been his teacher in high school, a lovely woman. The girl looks at her mother and then at her grandmother and then at me. She isn't an imbecile, this girl. In fact, like me, she sees and hears everything. She's maybe too smart, this girl. On her paper, she is drawing the ocean and the sun, but I don't know if it's the view out the window or my name, Mar e Sol, sea and sun, that she's drawing. Maybe, since she can't talk, it's her way of saying my name in Spanish, because she follows me into the kitchen and gives it to me, but when I put it on the refrigerator with a magnet, she takes it off and folds it up and puts it in my hand. And then she sneaks another scone. When Lois says, Thank you, Maria. What would I do without you, Maria? I know it's my cue to go to the foyer and get my bag. I hear her whisper to Angie, What will I do if we get a law like that one you have in Arizona, where all the Mexicans have to go back to Mexico? I can't afford an Oriental, not one that speaks English. And then she calls, Take the leftovers home, Maria, to your little ones, because we here, we do not need to eat sweets, and those scones are loaded with butter, and we are watching our girlish figures, aren't we, girls? I know she is looking at the girl, Jillian, who is at that age where the chubbiness has not yet become breasts or hips, and at her daughter, whom she thinks is not doing a good job, because she let the girl eat four scones not counting that extra one in the kitchen, and drink two cups of hot chocolate with lots of whipped cream. But, of course, the chocolate is very good. It is from Mexico. Jillian has stopped in front of a store called the Memory Gallery. She is gazing at white cartons like takeout containers for Chinese food. There are lots of them, and they are suspended from the ceiling by invisible strings, and so they seem to be floating in the air. Jillian studies her reflection in the storefront window, which is a gloss over the white containers hanging inside, the scrolls and the mannequin in the red Chinese dress, the photographs of old Chinatown, which are propped up in the window and seem eerily familiar. In the reflection, she sees behind her Chinatown in the morning, the street nearly empty, and her grandmother pushing her walker. Hunched over, she looks just like a little Chinese lady, even her tightly permed black hair, even her red sweater, and the walker makes the walking so slow that Jillian has time to look at herself in the windows, at the dragons on the light posts, at the bins full of vegetables she's never seen before, light green and looking like large sea cucumbers, or fantastic turds of fantastic lizards, maybe of Komodo dragons or Gila monsters, and the dried brown things in bins that look like the husks of cicadas and might cure anything if they didn't stink so much. Will someone make her drink tea? It is a possibility. 
She turns from the window, and across the street, there is a building like a huge pink pagoda, and a Chinese girl is leaning out of an upstairs window, and she is brushing her teeth, and Jillian looks at her, wonders if she's just been imported from China, or if she is a ghost who is always hanging out that window, brushing her teeth. The world swirls, a kind of upside-down whoosh, like when you look up too quickly and the buildings topple in and the clouds move fast and inside you're falling, like that, a whoosh. Her inside swirled upside down, and when she recovers her balance, there, on the walk in front of her, is her great-grandfather. Does anyone else see him? Her mother and grandmother have walked on. The grandmother, who adores him, lifting her walker, lifting her walker slowly in front of her, methodically in front of her. She seems to see nothing. Her grandmother and her mother and herself, Jillian looks at her own hand. They are the only ones who are still in color. Everyone else is like a photograph from the memory gallery come alive. Her great-grandfather is there, and the other men, some kind of officials with their black coats and little square hats, and the Chinese women dressed in long dresses just like Kitty in Gunsmoke. Well, maybe not so much cleavage. And the men are asking for the women's papers because they are Chinese, and whether they are citizens or not, they have to carry papers because, as her great-grandfather explains to her, you can't tell by looking at them. They all look alike, he says. Those Chinese, those inscrutable Chinese, those clever Chinese. And so they have to carry papers because the working man's party wants to exclude the yellow hordes, the Mongol hordes who take all the jobs and smoke opium and gamble and sleep with prostitutes, who bring their ways, which are not our ways, across the ocean and, really, they bring the mice and the lice and the plague and take over all the gold claims. And do we want miscegenation? No, it should be illegal. If a white woman marries a Chinaman, he says, she should lose her citizenship. If a white man kills a Chinaman over a gold claim, say, another Chinese cannot testify against him. We cannot have, in a court of law, a Chinaman testifying against a white man. If a Chinese doesn't have a resident pass, he should be arrested, sentenced to one year of hard labor, and then deported and made to pay for his deportation. Thus saith the working man's party and the golden state of California. Thus saith her great-grandfather, who was born the same year as the Exclusion Act, and so believes it is as natural as breathing to want to cut off a man's pigtail who is standing before her and seems to recognize her because he holds out his hand and says, Jillian, I've been watching you. Why, you are your grandmother's granddaughter. You have the same twinkling brown eyes and the same fanciful imagination. Let us go and drink the tea that is made from dried ginseng that looks a little, yes, like the dried husks of cicadas, but is not. Ginseng and ginger will do you good, my dear girl. Why did your mother marry that Mexican? And why did they take you away to that godforsaken desert? 
But Jillian sees her grandmother and her mother far up the sidewalk now, up near the crest of the hill, and she does not want to be left behind at the turn of another century, where there is no such thing as the good old days, no matter what they show on Bonanza or Rawhide or Gunsmoke. It's all the same as now, just ask Marisol, she thinks, who has fled Mexico and the rolling of heads there. And so she runs up the hill to her grandmother's red sweater. But when her grandmother turns around, it is not her grandmother. It is a little old Chinese lady with freckles dusting her face, and she seems to be glaring at Jillian. It's a glare. Jillian is sure. She is sure that little old lady does not like her. And then she looks up to see if her great-grandfather has followed, because she suddenly needs to know, did you really want my great-grandmother to die? Was that what you were waiting for? Why, you let her turn blue? She remembers the dark eyes and deep dimples of her great-grandmother in the picture on her mother's dresser, and she remembers the ponytail, that switch of her great-grandmother's thick black hair, her beautiful hair, that her mother keeps wrapped in silk in a special box in a special drawer. Did you? But he is gone, and instead, Jillian sees a church, and on the church these words, Observe the time and fly from evil. And the little Chinese lady is still glaring, but now she is no longer Chinese. She is Jillian's own fierce grandmother with her sharp nose and precise lipstick. Lois, glaring, because Jillian has nearly knocked her over, and one broken hip is all it would take. It is a precarious city. At any moment, the earth could shrug and the tall, tall buildings would topple, the glass falling in sheets and shards, shattering bones, shearing flesh, heads lopped off neatly, or not so neatly. The ocean could rise, fire could rage as it did after the 1906 quake when all that saved little Italy was blankets soaked in red wine. This is what Jillian is thinking, although not in these exact words. No, she is thinking in images and impressions. Glimpses of disaster come to her, and she is momentarily dizzy with the precariousness of it all, and therefore, with the brazen courage it must take to live in such a place. And therefore, when she rides the cable car with her mother and hangs off the side, she laughs at the smiling Chinese students in their neat school uniforms as they hang from the other cable cars coming from the other direction. She holds out her hand for a high five. They are all laughing as they slap at one another's hands. Because why not? This is Beth Alvarado, and you just heard excerpts from Jillian in the Borderlands, a cycle of rather dark tales. When I started writing the first story in 2010, I knew only that I wanted to experiment with telling stories from a variety of perspectives. And so each story is told in segments narrated by different characters. I created a, a few characters like Jillian and her mother, Angie, and Marisol and Juana of God, who would appear and reappear in the stories in order to provide some coherence. I also wanted moments and elements that were fantastic, or at least not strictly realistic. 
Those were the only constraints I gave myself. Other than the shifting perspectives and the magical moments, I let myself write anything I wanted and go wherever the voices would take me. After I finished the book, I realized that those two elements were organic or even necessary for a book set in the borderlands. And I decided that even when the shifting voices might be slightly disorienting or contradict one another, I hoped that would add to the verisimilitude or the emotional reality of the book. I also hoped the humor and the magic would help balance some of the darker and more political moments in the narrative. I would like to thank Stories on Stage Davis for giving me the opportunity to hear Jillian in the Borderlands dramatized, and Evan White for excerpting the tales, and Kelly Ogden for her brilliant reading. You've just heard Jillian in the Borderlands by Beth Alvarado, read by Kelly Ogden. If you've enjoyed listening, consider sharing this episode with a friend. And if you really enjoyed it, please consider making a donation on our website to help us keep sharing stories like these. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast is a sponsored project of YOLO Arts, a nonprofit arts organization, and supported in part by a grant from the City of Davis Arts and Cultural Affairs Program. Find upcoming episodes, view our archive of past episodes, and help support our series at storiesonstagedavis.com. Thank you.